Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame pulled away from Wisconsin on Saturday with an incredible fourth quarter for a 41-13 win in Chicago's Soldier Field. The Irish have shown signs of improvement, but um, we will find out this week if it is good enough to beat number seven Cincinnati in Notre Dame Stadium on Saturday. Um, But for all the improvement that Notre Dame has made through its first four games, the offensive line remains a, a serious issue, and as you've heard on the last few podcasts, Eric and I have tried our best to explain the problems with help from some others. Um, this week, we've called in the big gun, Aaron Taylor. Aaron uh, has the offensive line accolades that we certainly don't have. He was a two-time consensus All-American at Notre Dame, a Lombardi Award winner, and a founder of the Joe Moore Award that recognizes the best offensive line in college football. Aaron, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, my man. Thanks, you guys, for having me. You bet. I, I'm not. I'm not quite sure where to start this conversation, and I'm very interested to have it with you um, because I have so many questions about this offensive line. Uh, so let's just start with this. What has surprised you the most about the performance of this Notre Dame offensive line through four games this season? Well, first of all, we need to get rid of Brian Kelly, man. I think that that's crystal clear. <laughs> what, a ter- what a terrible job he's done. Uh, get that guy out of here. Uh, it, it's, it surprised me that there's been so many moving pieces. I think I expected, and we all expected, if you lose four guys to NFL training camps and three of those guys in the first three rounds, that you're going to have some issues there. But as we looked at it prior to the season, when I talked to Coach Kelly uh, earlier on, I think it was some point in late July, right before camp, he felt pretty good about the pieces that he had coming back at center and Josh Lug and uh, all the different things that uh, that that gave them a little bit more experience than it seemed that there would be on paper. Um, the the transfer from Marshall uh, Kane. I'm forgetting his last name. Madden. Madden. I always get it mixed up. I always want to say Kane Marshall, and I don't know why I have that name, <laughs> but I remember Kane. Um, so at first blush, it looked pretty good. And then you throw on the Florida state tape and I'm watching this true freshman kid play in real time. It wasn't a tape. 
And I'm like, damn, all right, this doesn't look too bad. And then boom, he goes down. And from that point forward, it just seems like this unit's been looking for answers. And guys, we all know the, the thing that makes offensive lines go is continuity and it's experience. And Notre Dame has had neither of those this year. So it's remarkable, in my opinion, that they've been able to uh, be as successful as we have um, given that most critical piece that's been so unstable lately. Well, I, I do a chat every Wednesday and I open up the queue a day early and I peeked in there and the queue is already just overflowing and about 90% of the questions are about offensive line. So <laughs> I kind of crystallized their number one question, which is, is this fixable? Is it fixable in October? Is it fixable this season? Yes, and be patient. These things take time. Once you get guys healthy and once they return to uh, where you can get some guys in the, the same faces in the same places multiple games in a row, and that just simply hasn't been the case at the most important position of left tackle and maybe not necessarily the most on the offensive line, but it's an extremely important one, that continuity is hard. And, and I'll be honest, that's the big part of what I saw when I put the tape on flying to New York today, or yesterday I guess it was, when I watched that game was when they got on guys – it looked okay. It looked pretty good. The the hands and the feet, which you, you always watch the feet first, and the first steps were good. And you could tell that they were in unison. And there's nothing – what you guys need to understand is there's nothing that is natural about playing the offensive line position. So when you see things getting done like they're supposed to get done, it's because it's been coached into them. And Jeff Quinn has a long track record of doing that. Harry Heastan obviously was, you know, on the monks, the best that's ever done it. And he was a Joe Moore disciple. But that line last year, it took a year for it to take hold. But I thought played pretty damn good. And I think Notre Dame fans, what makes us so hard is we've been spoiled, man. Like we've had this elite run of great offensive line players and units that it makes it almost jarring when we see kind of the performance of this year, but like nothing's happened. It's like Jeff Quinn didn't wake up and, and not know how to coach. It's just that you've got a lot of new people and a lot of new faces. You've got a quarterback that's different to the system. And now you've got a couple different quarterbacks that are there and you add a Wisconsin defense that's moving around like crazy with some sophisticated stuff. And what I saw was guys blocking their, their pass protection rules but Wisconsin was blocking stuff that broke those rules, and it took them a while to figure that out because we have to do what we call bastardize our pass protection rules, and that's where the chess match is. Well, when you've got a bunch of vets up there, that's easy to do. When you've got a bunch of first-time players and guys that haven't played next to each other and you see a linebacker flash, you're not sure if it's supposed to be your guy or if that's going to be the guy that Kyron picks up or we hot off that linebacker this week and it's actually Jack's guy to get. With a young player, you think about those things in a nanosecond and that's enough to hesitate and that's enough to cut somebody free. A veteran player is going to let that first linebacker go because he knows the, the back's got him and he's going to take the other looping linebacker and or the quarterback's half off him and he doesn't worry about it and he helps double the nose. Like Those things happen in an instant and when you're not as seasoned or experienced and that's 
to me, in my opinion, the main culprit here, you're going to have busts like you did early on in that game. Now, they made adjustments and they got better in in many respects as the game went on. And that's why I think to to answer your question in a long ass winded form, Eric, <laughs> uh, it's going to get better, but it's going to take some time and you better bu- buckle up and be patient, including this weekend against a pretty active and athletic Cincinnati front. Aaron, I think uh, one of the questions that sort of follows that is like, okay, can do does getting better require changing personnel or do, do they have to stick with these same guys and let allow these guys to get better? What, what are your thoughts on that? And, and is it sort of paramount to have those same guys in there to make sure that that communication gets to the level where it needs to be to, to have the success you're talking about? Well, I, I don't know, Tyler, if you're married, I, I believe Eric is, I've certainly been married for a while, but like if things aren't going well in your marriage, you don't hit eject and go find a new one the next weekend. Right. Like I, I think to a certain extent, maybe some people do, uh, <laughs> but it, it tends not to work because there are, are the, I, I think what people understand, like you don't go open a can of new left tackles. Like you have who you have, and those guys are at the point of development that they are. So you've got to work with what you've got. The rule of thumb in our room as an O-lineman is you put your best five on the field in the best positions that allows the greatest net outcome possible. What that looked like my senior year was being a unanimous All-American at the cozy guard position with a big body on my right and Tim Ruddy and a big body on my left and Lindsey Knapp. And I get to be there in the middle and have all this love and, and safety around me. Well, Joe Moore and Lou Holtz got together and thought it'd be a really good idea to move me out to left tackle where there's all kind of space. And even though it was just one position move over, the box, as I come up to the line of scrimmage, looks completely different from out there. The creature and athlete that I was expected to block looked completely different out there. I couldn't be in a pass-blocking situation in a right-handed stance as a left tackle because that puts my left foot forward, and I'm already half a step late, so I had to switch hands, and I never got comfortable with that. It didn't feel natural, and I struggled mightily. And so finally I said, screw it, and played in a right-handed stance as a left tackle and won the damn Lombardi Award. You guys don't understand what a freaking unicorn that is, but it's extremely hard to do. And I look at tape and see highlights, and I just shake my head like, oh, my God, I was a disaster. (laughs) But my point in all of that is is you got to put your five best out there. And right now they're still looking for those answers and complicate the injuries that have taken place that are also playing a role and again, I think fans, I would really encourage them to, to go from, gosh, dang, what's wrong with this line? Let's figure it out. Let's get new guys in there to be patient and to appreciate how well this coaching staff has managed that because you can ask the Clemson Tigers what having a bad offensive line does to an offense that's got a ton of talent on it because that's exactly what it looks like in Clemson. And Notre Dame's found ways to play around it in his 4-0 where the Tigers have lost two games so far this year. Well, Aaron, I'm going to pull you out of the offensive line hat for just a second and put you in the offensive coordinator seat. So you've got Jack Cohn, who's a really experienced quarterback, has won some big games at Wisconsin, has shown a lot of poise, and does not have foot speed. And then you have two other quarterbacks on your roster each with less experience, each more athletic as you get less experience. 
at, at what point does playing those more athletic quarterbacks make sense when you have an offensive line that has these kind of growing pains and issues to work through? Well, man, um, that's really the million dollar question, right? And I think it goes back again to the, the staff has to do what they believe gives them the best chance to, to get first downs. And then when you finally get as many first downs as you can and there's no more field, you put the ball in the end zone and then you start over. Um, obviously, Jack won the job. He's earned that job. He's extremely experienced, but he's been getting banged up and now he's got you know, a lower extremity injury uh, that he suffered and had to leave the game. And now it becomes an issue where is an injured Jack Cone better than the athletic kids behind him? And I just simply, I can't answer that question. I haven't watched practice. I've talked to some guys. Uh, I get a sense of, of where their heads are at maybe, but it'd be more of a guess than anything. But like, Fans, fans, like the coaches aren't up there saying, you know what, we really like Jack. Let's let's yeah. you know let let's leave him in there because you know he he committed to us and and trans. Like at the end of the day, like they got to win football games and yeah. they're going to do what they believe is in their best interest based on what they see at practice every day. The the litany of off season workouts and practice tapes and they chart and track everything. Like there's nobody that knows these players and personnel better than the coaches and they're going to do what's best for the entire team, whether that means Jack Cohn plays or not. So I think fans sometimes get it twisted and are unrealistic and want a magic wand to be waved and think that the coaches aren't, you know, spending sleepless nights thinking about these very things about what gives us the best chance. And I think with all due respect to fans, a lot of football has been maddenized and to be a good quarterback, you just got to throw it to the open guy, right? If you're an offensive lineman and you're big and strong, just get in front of the defender. Well, I wish it were that simple, but it's not. And I think there's a lot of offenses around the country this year that are learning that harsh lesson. And I think it'd be smart to appreciate how good they've had it and for how long they've had it that good. And again, I'll point to the Clemson led the ACC last year in total offense and are dead ass last in that conference. Like we're living in a world fellas where Wake Forest is the best team in the ACC right now. And you've got Clemson and their three games against FBS teams have averaged 188 yards and 10 points. And that's the same DJ Uyunglele that lit Notre Dame's ass up, that lit BC's ass up when Trevor Lawrence couldn't play. And now they can't get a damn first down. So <laughs> don't underestimate just how difficult it is to move the football. And these coaches have more than proven, particularly the one that just is the all named as the all time winningest coach, not named earned uh, <laughs> the right to be Notre Dame's all time winningest damn football coach. The guy knows a thing or two about how to win some football games. Be patient and trust that this staff is capable and qualified to get the best possible result out of this team and I, coming into this year on paper, I thought Notre Dame was an eight, nine win team. No way did I think they were a double digit win or would they be a playoff team? And here they sit five and they'll have a top 10 matchup. If they can beat an undefeated Cincinnati at seven or eight or wherever the heck they are, man, it's been an incredible season already. And I would strongly advise 
Irish fans to enjoy it for what it is. It's a beautiful, hot mess, but winning is hard to do. And Coach Kelly and these boys have found a way to do that four times in a row. You would make an excellent coach because you danced a little bit around that question. But let, let me follow it up with this. If Ian Book were the quarterback with his mobility and his ability to add to the run game, do you think we would notice the offensive line growing pains a lot less? Well, yeah. Um, if you've got a mobile quarterback, like look at Kyler Murray. I, I called week one Arizona against the Titans, and, and he does stuff that you just scratch your head because there's no defense for that. Lamar Jackson, we saw that. And you can go down the litany of, of list of mobile quarterbacks that can buy time, extend plays, or create with their feet. So, you know, there's a lot of what ifs in this deal. Um, it does take some of the pressure off. But to your point, like me talking around the question, like you can only play around your offensive line so much. I'll give you an example. Last week I called Boise State at Utah State. And Boise State's having trouble running the football. Their offensive line's not playing as well as they've had. So what they did is they leveraged the strength of the team, which is the skill position. And there were five different people in the first half that touched, that had a carry uh, with the football. So they started using other players besides their running backs to manufacture the run game. A lot of swing passes, a lot of reverses. Uh, some quarterback power, some quarterback draw. They ran a lot of wild Bronco or wildcat, where, but with a wide receiver that came into the backfield, they had to be able to find a way to manufacture a run game, and they got really creative in the way that they did it. And Tim Plow, their offensive coordinator, did a masterful job, I thought, but the rushing numbers still weren't eye-popping but it was efficient enough for them to go on the road and get a win to get back to two and two against a pretty high powered offense. So what's going on at Notre Dame is going on all over the country. And again, these staffs find ways to maximize their personnel the best they can. And they're four and oh man. And it hasn't been pretty. And there were three non-offensive touchdowns to scored, and it was a nail biter going into halftime into the third quarter until we went on that little bit of run. But it these these problems don't get fixed overnight. And when you mix inexperience with injuries, it's amazing to me that Notre Dame is four and oh right now. And I think that they should be celebrated for that, for literally maximizing the potential that they have versus being vilified because we compare it to the way they've looked in the past. It's just not fair. It's not rational. I understand it, but it's not the world that these coaches or players live in, and you would hope that fans would appreciate that. Aaron, Aaron uh, the, you mentioned the, the left tackle situation. Obviously, they've now had four guys take snaps at left tackle in, in four games. I, I'd be curious to know when the heck the last time that happened at Notre Dame. But to, to me – it's it's been surprised. The other side of the line has been surprising in that it doesn't seem that they've been able to establish any sort of dominance with with Josh Lug at right tackle and Caden Madden at right guard. King coming from Marshall was a second team All American, so I think there were some high expectations for what he could do. What have you seen from those guys, and and what sort of room for improvement do you see from them? Well, the right side's the best side right now, um, but they're also doing a lot of things to compensate for, for what's going on. And I don't know the nuances of the schemes, but with the naked eye and kind of looking at things like you're, you're going to try to support 
what's maybe not as consistent as, as what is, but there's nobody up front that I think is, you know, playing their best football right now. And I think that they would say that, but part of that is a rising tide raises all boats, Tyler. And because of all the different faces and moving pieces, that's extremely disruptive. And if you've got, you know, an infection in your leg, even though you don't have one in your shoulder, your shoulders attached to the body that has the infection and it's, you know, you're going to have some residual effects there. Um, I, it, the line isn't performing the way that they want to. It's not performing the way that the coaches would expect them or need them or want them to. Um, but as I see it, that's been the best part of the game that I watched, which was the Wisconsin game and part of the film against Florida state. And then watching whatever I could with my naked eye, with the broadcast, uh, there's some work to do up there, but I still think that this is a, a line. If they can get some consistency that will be performing average to above average by the end of the year, I think fans should give Jeff Quinn and, and, uh, Kelly, the benefit of the doubt to figure that out. Aaron, we went through this a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we've been talking about offensive line every week, but you know there are there are some weird things that happen with recruiting and with injuries, and it seems like Notre Dame's talent, a lot of the talent, is in that freshman class. I mean, they've got three really good freshmen. They have two really good sophomores. And there's some people above them that are not quite as good. I'm, I don't think you had a lot of development time as a non-starter. So this might be a difficult question, but how do, how do the backup guys get better? How do you develop them when they're not playing in games so that when it's their turn, they're ready to go? How does that process work? Well, it worked my freshman year by getting my ass kicked by Chris Zorich on the scout team. That's how that looks. <laughs> and there might have been a couple uh, teary-eyed conversations early on when I called my mom. I was like, Mom, I, I, I can't play at this level. There's this guy, number 50, he's kicking my ass. He's got arms like legs and legs like people. And I just I, I try to put my hands on him. He just throws me, and I can't block him. And, you know, that, of course, turned out to be Zorro, and he won the Lombardi that year as the best interior defensive lineman, so the growing pains were rough. I really developed in my at the, the, the spring after my freshman season, and I was penciled in as the starter. I took all the one reps. It meant I got the majority of uh, the offseason reps. Summer conditioning was what it was. You go into fall camp. The development comes by working on the fundamentals of the position, and you do that as a group, an individual, but then once team goes, you got to go and put that on tape. So a lot of that largely de depends on the player. Um, but it's hard because it's not a democracy and not everybody gets the same amount of development. But I was a really talented young player. I was not ready to play my freshman year. I'd argue that maybe I was, maybe I wasn't my sophomore year when I started. But, but I'll tell you guys, like that very first game I played in against Indiana and Bill Walsh was calling the game, like there were times I walked up the line of scrimmage where I was mostly sure it was a run and, and, and almost kind of sure about who exactly I had to block. Mm -hmm. Like I was leaning on like Gene McGuire and Mirko and Justin Hall and Lindsey Knapp, like – I'd come up the line of scrimmage and Gene would be like 56. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. And like, <laughs> you just don't know. It's moving so freaking fast. And 
you know, I think the expectation is you you see these guys that come in and play right away, and that's why you see a left tackle freshman that comes in. You're like, holy bleep! Like, there's no way I could have started a game as a true freshman, and I went on to win the damn Lombardi Trophy. So, like, it's it's difficult to do that, and the development takes place over time. But when guys are thrust into a position that they're not ready for that retards it because now you're chasing your tail and you have to worry about so many other things versus where your landmark, your first step, and you want your backside shoulder and knee to go. So it's that young talent and the development, this position, it's, and I'm being long-winded a little bit here, but I, the, the offensive line is the true skill position. I think we've misnamed it. We call wide receivers and running backs and all those things skill players, but they're the least skilled on the field. They're the most athletic. The offensive line is the most skilled, fundamentally sound position because we have to be, because we are the least athletic group. We're not nearly as athletic as the defensive linemen that we're asked to block. So we have to compensate that with good fundamentals and good technique. That's why Joe Moore was so good at it. It's why Harry Heastan was so good at it. It's why Jeff Quinn has done a remarkable job at it. And, and when you have younger players, you just don't have the time to develop that. And that's why you look on the next level. Good college players, they'll stick around the league for four or five years and eventually become starters where running backs have to come in and play right away. They play on special teams. If they can't get it done, they're out in three years. It takes time to develop the skills to be a successful offensive lineman. And that's why you see challenges when guys are young, but that development happens in individual. And then when you go down and have to block the scout team, because you're a backup. Aaron, you've, you've spoken to Jeff Quinn a little bit here. I wanted to follow up a little bit on that because that he's certainly in, in the, the minds of some Notre Dame fans, he's like on the hot seat and they, what has been surprising to me is the the lack of credit that folks want to give him for the previous seasons. Um, and they, they want to say that he just inherited Harry Heastan's guys and that's the only reason they were good. And um, there's been a lot of credit awarded to Chris Watt as a graduate assistant um, for the reason that Notre Dame's offensive line played uh, last season. I know I, this may sound crazy, but I, I promise this, these are the, this is the feedback that we get from folks. Um, can you just sort of speak to what Jeff Quinn has done at Notre Dame and why you believe he um, – is the kind of guy that can get things turned around with this offensive line. I'd point to last year's draft and, and what happened with those guys and where they were. And, and certainly they, you know, shared some time underneath Harry. He stand, but there were four guys that were in NFL camps. Three got drafted in the first three rounds, right? They were playing at a pretty high level until their center went down last year towards the end of the year. So I, <laughs> I think the biggest problem here is unrealistic expectations with fan bases that want quick answers and think that you can solve this shit in 140 characters. Like it just doesn't work that way. And certainly there's guys that are, you know, better at their job than others. But, but part of this is that Harry, he stands a legend just like Joe Moore's a legend, but that doesn't mean Jeff Quinn can't coach. So I, <laughs> Jeff's a good coach. The thing that I watch when I throw on the tape is, is feet first, right? You watch the feet and then you work your way up the body. You want to see consistencies in technique. Are they landing their hands inside? Will they throw their hands in pass protection? Are they stepping under themselves? What do their bases look like? Are they smoothing their kick sets? 
you put the tape on that I watched against Wisconsin, there's a lot of similarities of the stuff that I saw when Harry had all of his guys, right? It's, it's cut from the same cloth. And I think Jeff's a very capable, good offensive line coach. And if you gave Harry the group that Jeff's working with right now, it wouldn't look all that different. I got to be honest and I hate to break, you know, the message board hearts out there that want to get Jeff's ass out of there and fire Brian Kelly's ass after the four win season. And just like, get rid of everybody's ass. I'm tired of watching Alabama be successful. It's like, yeah, I get it. And this shit ain't that easy. So relax, be patient. And if you're a true fan, cheer for your team and hope for the best. These kids are out there working their ass off, doing the best that they can. Jeff's in there every day doing the best that he can with what he's inherent. And it's a challenge right now, but if they stay patient and they continue to work, I trust me at the end of the year, Notre Dame fans are going to feel a hell of a lot better about this team than they will right now. And there might be a couple losses on the record. Last one from me, Aaron, and we appreciate you staying with us for so long is uh, I don't know how much when you're watching Notre Dame's games that you watch Notre Dame's defense at all. Do you watch it at all? I do. I do. Okay. I, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Marcus Freeman and, and what I've seen him do over the years. So I, I appreciate it. What, what, what are maybe the biggest challenges for let's say Cincinnati this week about going against that defense, their offensive line, what, what's the difficulty in facing what Marcus likes to do with his front seven? There's a lot of movement. Um, you don't know where guys are coming from. Uh, he's going to bring four or five, but you don't know where they're at. Uh, but you live by the sword and you die by the sword. And when you got players that aren't necessarily as familiar with the aggressive style, and that's what part of the problem was early on, I think it's getting better, is a lot of the breakdowns that happened on those big runs were all gaps where the, the linebackers were you know, cross-dogging in the A-gaps and just got washed up. And they weren't gap sound. And I don't give a shit what defense you run. If you don't have a body in each of the gaps, which are the spaces between offensive linemen, you're going to give up big plays. And that's what was happening. Now, they've started to figure some of that out. And there's been less of those big runs. And it's starting to look like the defenses that I think we all expected and, and wanted Marcus Freeman to be able to do. He's got a long track record of doing it. When you put the tape on the other side and watch this Cincinnati defense that's coming in, they kept a lot of the stuff he did because their defense is built for it and they've got the personnel. They're a very athletic defense and they use that speed and they rely on that speed and it causes a lot of problems. So identification, and that's the thing, honestly, I'll be honest, boys, has me worried about this week is Cincinnati's coming off a of bye week. So they have the element of surprise on their hands. When I watched Notre Dame against Wisconsin, it wasn't that they were getting overpowered, is that they were letting guys go free. There were free rushers in both the run and the pass that were causing lost yardage plays. You're turning linebackers or defensive ends, rather, both, but defensive ends free so that Kyron's got to go block them as a running back. You never want to do that, but that's what was happening. And I watched in certain snaps. And again, I don't know the protections, but I, I know O-line play enough to know what I think they were doing. You can't have two guys fan out to a guy that drops and turn a defensive end free on a running back. That should never happen. If you got older players, you can make calls that, that we call bastardizing the protections that adjust for that in real time. So I'm, I'm a little nervous about Cincinnati 
and what they could have cooked up to show Notre Dame's offensive line some things that they haven't seen and haven't taken a snap on this week in practice based off what they saw work for them in Wisconsin. And that, to me, is going to determine whether or not Notre Dame wins this game is how well the offensive line can pick up the can of worms that that Wisconsin opened last week against a defense that's going to try to do the same thing. Aaron, I was going to wrap up, but I, I feel like I need to give you the opportunity to talk about what Kyron Williams has done in pass protection for Notre Dame. What, what Can you speak to what, what you like about what Kyron Williams brings in, in that aspect of the game? I just want to thank the young man because now I know what I'm going to be for Halloween. I'm going to dress up <laughs> Kyron Williams. That's some of bitch. Oh, my God. Like, it, it is like I've got a Kyron Williams fetish. I've got a man crush on this kid. Like, I want to shoot up, boys, and go get back in the huddle with this dude. I've seen a running back as willing or as capable to pass protect is 23. And I've tweeted stuff out. And last year, there were several shots. This year, there's several shots. And it's about attitude. It's a willingness to do what he does. And and the the clip that I tweeted out earlier, it wasn't just that he blocked him and knocked the running back down. It's like the little flipper of the elbow that comes out just to do the atomic head drop. Like, (laughs) he doesn't have to do that, but he does because that's who that dude is. And he runs that way, too. We talk all the time about two down, you know, running back or a three down back. Kyron Williams is a dude that you feel real good on third down. You going to bring your backer? Linebacker, you better buckle your junk because 23 going to bring it. All right, Aaron, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk us through all these offensive line concerns, and uh, we will see how they play out against uh, a tough Cincinnati defense this weekend. All right, Tyler, I appreciate you too, Eric. Go Irish. All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame, Cincinnati. First one I have for us, Eric, is more carries. Tyler Buckner or Chris Tyree? Well, since we don't know for sure what Tyler Buckner's role is going to be in this game, I'm going to go with Chris Tyree because I think he's, I mean, he's the guy that's guaranteed going to get some carries. Um, so that's that's the way I'm going to go with this. All right, I thought about playing it safe on the chance that Tyler Buckner doesn't play, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take Buckner if if he plays. I think he will get more carries. I'm curious to see what the dedication to the running game remains with with its continued struggles, and um, it seems to me that getting Chris Tyree the ball in the passing game is more efficient for Notre Dame's offense. So um, I think that there's a chance if Tyler does play that. He will certainly get carries, and I'm not sure how many carries Chris Tyree will get against Cincinnati. Next one I have, over under five and a half sacks allowed by Notre Dame. Well, they've certainly been allowing lots of them, and I think some of it, again, depends how much Jack Cohn plays because I think the other two quarterbacks are less susceptible to sacks. The other thing that's really odd about Cincinnati's three games so far this season is they're near the bottom in the country in sacks. Um, Even though they have a similar scheme and a somewhat similar philosophy, some really good secondary guys that can cover a long time and they have pass rushers. 
So it's a little bit odd, but maybe they're not showing their full packages in terms of uh, everything they want to do from blitzing and stunning and things like that, since they really only needed to do everything in the Indiana game. Uh, they played Miami of Ohio and Murray State prior. I'm going to say under on that number. Uh, Notre Dame is currently allowing 5.25 sacks per game. Um, and I, I'm going to take the over until proven otherwise with this offensive line. Cincinnati's front is capable, even though their sack numbers aren't that high yet. I do think um, we've seen many a opposing defense outperform their sack numbers against Notre Dame. Um, I think you're right that there's a chance that the number lowers if Jack Cohn doesn't play, um, but it's certainly too soon to say whether he does or doesn't. We saw him walking off the field at, after tonight's practice in pads so he looked like he practiced and uh had his ankle taped up certainly but um, we'll see what his diagnosis is i'm curious how coy notre dame tries to be with that throughout the week as well but certainly brian kelly has not been coy about believing that if if he's healthy he's the starter so um i will uh i'll go over five and a half sacks which seems kind of crazy that you're you're predicting that notre dame's going to give up at least six sacks but that's just where my that's just where my head is at right now with the way the offensive line is playing. Next one I have for us is over under 250 passing yards for Desmond Ritter. Well, the pass defense has really gotten a lot better for Notre Dame um, the past couple of weeks. I think their run defense is also very good. Ritter is maybe the fastest quarterback that they'll see this year. I think he runs a four five five forty. Um, so I think Cincinnati's going to be try to be a little bit more balanced. I'm trying to think of Mike Denbrock's tendencies, and so I'm going to go slightly under on that passing number. I am going to go over. I think uh, it's it's not it's. I don't think it's that hard to get to 250 yards. Graham Mertz got to 240 when I looked terrible. Um, so uh, I think it's certainly achievable. It doesn't necessarily mean that it would be a great game for him, though. I think that he may be one of the best quarterbacks that they play against this season. He's averaging just under 250 yards this season, um, but I think he's going to have to throw more against Notre Dame. I don't know that the run – I think the run defense is going to hold up against Cincinnati, so they will be – asked to throw the ball more than maybe they're even comfortable with. And so that will force Desmond Ritter into throwing for more than 250 passing yards. Next one over under three and a half catches for Avery Davis. Well, let's see here. I feel like I'm really stumping you this week. I'm having well, work for it. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to think of how Cincinnati set up. So I think, Mayor probably has the best matchup against them. I think Austin is going to really have to fight, and Lindsey's really going to have to fight. And Avery Davis, I would say Davis and Mayor probably have the best matchups. So I'll I'll roll the dice and go a little bit over with Avery. Yeah, that, that's sort of my thinking. Cincinnati has has really good outside quarterbacks which I think will make life difficult for Austin and Lindsay, unless they want to assign one of them to Avery Davis. I, I know I don't think that would be totally crazy. I think Avery Davis has shown to be a much more consistent wide receiver than Braden Lindsay has. Um, now, it, now I, I, it depends on Cincinnati's depth of personnel, which I don't have 
that great of a knowledge for. Like if if they have a really fast cornerback that they feel like that isn't the, their two starting corners that they can maybe just assign to Braden Lindsay for this game, um, just to make sure that he's not he's not beating them on a deep ball because he uh, Braden Lindsay hasn't shown an ability to consistently beat them in other consistently beat teams in other ways. Um, so I, I think there will be some good opportunities for Avery Davis and Michael Mayer, like you mentioned, but. I think Avery Davis will also have a pretty good game, so I will go over three and a half catches. Next one, over under one and a half rushing touchdowns for Cincinnati. Mm. Well, you know, you would think that I would be set on these, and I'm, I'm pondering because <laughs> I, I, I did some more reading today. I think you. I think you've said well after every one, and I don't know that you normally respond that way. <laughs> well, I, usually they're a little bit easier uh, <laughs> because, again, it's Ritter is such a wild card in this. His running yeah. ability is such a wild card. So I'm, I'm going to say they're more likely to have rushing touchdowns than passing touchdowns. So I'm going to go over. All right. I'm in agreement there with over. I think. Um, with the help of Desmond Ritter, like you mentioned, that they'll be able to get to those two rushing touchdowns. Both he and Jerome Ford, I think, have a, have a are, are good at getting into the end zone. Um, and I think we have seen at times, even earlier this season, Jordan Travis is really hard for Notre Dame to sort of um, keep track of in, in the running game. So I'm curious what Desmond Ritter is able to do against Notre Dame in that fashion. Now I imagine they're going to have a good plan for that. Um, and if uh, the way the defense has improved throughout the season continues, um, there's reason to believe that Notre Dame can hold them out, hold them to less than two rushing touchdowns. But I will I will predict the over um, and say that they will get into the end zone on the ground more than more than uh, once. And then lastly, what is your final score prediction for Notre Dame Cincinnati? I'm going to go Notre Dame 30, Cincinnati 24. All right. I have Cincinnati 31, Notre Dame 27 um, for the second week in a row, predicting Notre Dame to lose. We'll see if I get proven wrong like I was last week, but I I, I will be shocked if Notre Dame finishes this season undefeated. And this is the game that I think is the one that has the is the best recipe for Notre Dame to lose. Um, so uh, I just haven't if Notre Dame's offense if Notre Dame's offensive line had played better against Wisconsin. I might feel comfortable picking Notre Dame in this game, but I'm just not there yet. Um, I think Cincinnati is going to be able to do enough things offensively. I think Notre Dame's offense will put or will put its defense in enough poor situations that will prevent them from keeping Cincinnati under 30 points. Um, so that's sort of the logic behind my prediction. We'll see if I'm wrong once again. Cool. All right. Now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's that you guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from Wayne Usteroff at W Usteroff. I know Jack Cohn is not a runner, but what could a couple of cute quarterback draws or RPOs hurt to help to keep a defense a little honest? And then he also asked, did Nana Osafomensa play Saturday? He seemed to break out against Purdue. Okay, um, the first one with Cone. No, I'm not for that. 
um, because it, even under normal circumstances, when he's fully healthy, Jack Cohn is not going to express those plays well. You're not really keeping the defense honest because they can cheat and they can, with their catch-up speed, limit that play. Like Tyler Buckner had a third and 17, I think inside the five-yard line against Purdue, and he had a quarterback draw and got 20 yards. In that same play, I don't think Cone gets eight yards. Uh, he certainly doesn't get a first down on it. So I don't know how much keeping us. And then if he's not 100% with his leg, do you really want to expose him in those plays? Um, Nano Safa Mensa played against Wisconsin. I think it was 31 snaps. He did not have um, he did not have any statistics in that game, which doesn't mean he didn't play well. You know, sometimes you're absorbing blocks and opening things up for the linebackers to flow to the ball. Uh, but he did play in the Wisconsin game. Yeah, when you have eight defensive linemen, and that's excluding Jordan Botello. Um, based on the role that he played in that game, uh, playing more than 20 snaps. Not everyone is going to make a statistical impact, but um, I thought Nana played well in some of the reps that I spotted him. Um, I don't know uh, that there's much to be concerned about there. Um, as for Jack Cohn, I think those runs would be helpful. And now I am, I'm in agreement with you that now might not be the time if his ankle is an issue. Um, but I do think that, Keeping the I defense. think Notre Dame needs those plays. I, I just don't like it with him doing them. I If Pine or Buckner were doing them, but go ahead. I'm sorry to mean to run off. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, they're not going to ask him to run for a first down on third and 17. Um, and also, they should be more open because the defense isn't going to be as committed to trying to stop him running as, as, a, as the defense is going to be trying, committed to stopping Tyler Buckner from running. So I think there will be some opportunities and if you just freeze that backside defensive end for a split second um, every once in a while to get him to second guess whether or not he should be flying back there, that can be the difference between him getting able, being able to track down Kyron Williams from behind. And the, part, part of the issue is that Kyron Williams and Chris, Chris, Chris Tyree need the time to figure out where the holes are at because the holes aren't clear and obvious. And so they need as much time as they can get from the backside um, to, to be able to find where they need to go on the front side. So, um, I don't know that that um, Jack Cohn's going to rip off any big gains in doing that, but if, even if it's three or four yards, um, I think that that is is worth worth the time. I mean, to me, it's it's somewhat like continuing to throw to Braden Lindsay deep, even if you're not necessarily completing him. The defense has to at least think about defending that in the future. Um, now, it's certainly not the same if you if you if you don't if you don't cover Braden Lindsay well and Notre Dame converts on that, it's a touchdown. If you don't um, sell out or have someone making sure that Jack Cohn isn't keeping the ball. He's probably not scoring a touchdown unless it's on the one yard line. But um, I think that uh, I think that it would be somewhat helpful. And I would be in favor of the read options or RPO game rather than the the, the quarterback draws. I don't think quarterback draws is, is something that that Jack Cohn will be successful at. Um, so I think uh, I thought I've also found it interesting. Brian Kelly this week sort of talked about Jack Cohn and why he had, maybe isn't making decisions as quickly as, as he could. Um, and, he, and he said that Brian Kelly said that Jack is still getting comfortable making those decisions out of the shotgun rather than under center. So that would be, lead me to believe that he's not going to be very good at these RPO situations if he's still struggling with 
with those kinds of things. So um, you would have liked to think that that would be developed by now, but uh, maybe that's not the case. Next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher 15. What sense do you both have that Brian Kelly truly thinks Jack Cohn is the answer at quarterback over Drew Pine or Tyler Buckner? Given the offensive line struggles, it seems the other quarterbacks have the skill set needed to help offset the line struggles. Well, it's kind of like a little puzzle because you have quarterbacks that are more athletic, and then you have this guy that's played in big games, played in a Rose Bowl, played in a Big Ten championship, and has won big games, um, has experience, you like his toughness, you like his leadership, and you don't like his foot speed. And so I think Brian Kelly thinks Jack Cohn is the best option now. He may feel differently about that down the road. And certainly if Jack Cohn's not healthy, that makes the foot speed problem worse. Again, Jack Cohn with last year's line would have looked a lot better. And I, and I went back and looked at some of the games that he had at Wisconsin as the starter. And he had some big days. Um, so, but he also had a really good offensive line in front of him. So, uh, you know, you have to grade it on that curve that the offensive line isn't holding up right now. But uh, I think, I, I just think this is going to be a multiple quarterback situation at least through October. Yeah, I, I, I mean, to specifically to the question, Brian Kelly wouldn't be starting Jack Cohn if he didn't think he was the best answer because starting Jack Cohn doesn't do anything for you next season or the, or the season after. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that Brian Kelly anticipated the offensive line being as poor as it has been, um, and I think they thought that Jack Cohn would be better moving around the pocket and helping off out the offensive line. Um, so those are – struggles that aren't just on the offensive line. They're partially on Jack Cohn. And I think they're trying to figure out if that is something that is fixable. Um, and um, certainly they're getting a, a better look at what Drew Pine can do for them with, with the way he filled in. And, and they've seen some of the stuff that Tyler Buckner has done. Um, I think you, you may know a little bit more about how Drew Pine reacts to the normal offense because he was actually running sort of the normal offense where when Tyler Buckner has been in there, he's been more or less running an RPO package, um, which, which you could certainly run as your offense for an entire game if you want to. I mean, there's enough different ways to run RPOs that um, would be tough to stop. Um, so I, I, I think that the, the, I just, uh, the, the question itself, I, I'm not sure like what, what I would ask, well, well, why would Brian Kelly be, Starting Jack Cohn if he if he didn't think he was the the answer at the quarterback now um, maybe his his position on that will change he at least outwardly is expressing that it hasn't changed um, and we will see how, sort of how that develops throughout the season but you're right I I mean they like what Tyler Buckner can do enough that they're going to probably continue to use that because just I just don't see the running game being able to be effective enough without um, mixing him into the game. Next question is from at Brett Kovach. Two questions. Number one, if Jack Cohn isn't 100% this week, would you start him against Cincinnati with the troubles that the O-line is having? Second question, out of the 106 Brian Kelly wins, which one is your favorite and which one is his best? If he's not 100%, I don't start him. You, you just can't 
you know, deal with not having maximum foot speed and maximum footwork from him. So no, I would yeah. start Drew Pine. And Drew Pine showed you in the Wisconsin game that he can handle a big moment. Now, can he handle a whole game of big moments? <laughs> right. But but at least he showed you in that stretch he was poised. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement. A, a less mobile Jack Cohn does not seem like a, a risk worth taking. He may still be a better deep thrower than Pine, even if he is less mobile. But I'm not sure that those throws would be able to salvage the potential for even more sacks that that Jack Cohn would would be um, facing if, if he can't move better than he already has has been. Um, what are your thoughts on Brian Kelly's? Your favorite win of Brian Kelly's, and which one was Brian Kelly's best win? I think I'm going to say two games, and I think they fit into both categories. I think the Clemson game last year, you beat the number one team in the country in overtime. Um, that was a great game. The student reaction was great. I mean, it was scary from a COVID standpoint until you found out they were all um, they all had been tested before the game. And so you felt a little bit better about that storming the field uh, thing. And I was just so grateful for football last year. <laughs> uh, so even the crummy games were, were valuable to me and some of my favorite games. And then the other one I would have to say is Oklahoma in 2012. Uh, you know, I had seen that script before and Notre Dame kind of fall off the stage and they went into Oklahoma, and Bob Stutz had an incredible record against non-conference teams. I think he had lost four games in his whole time there against non-conference teams. And Notre Dame played a very tight game until the end, like Wisconsin, where, where Notre Dame just kind of dogpiled them at the end. And I just thought that's when people believed that Notre Dame was relevant again. That's when they thought, okay, this isn't, um, you know, the Charlie Weiss couple years in the BCS and then a, a big fade. This is a program that has a chance to stick around and have a renaissance. So those would be my two. Yeah, those are the two games I wanted to highlight. The To me, the Oklahoma one was my my favorite. Now, now picking a favorite game is is certainly differently from, different from like our standpoint as reporters than like a fan. Um, and and I, to me, like, a favorite would be something that there's some sort of personal sentiment to like that for me, that was the first big road game I was able to cover for the Tribune. Um, the atmosphere was certainly pretty cool. It was the weekend, the Oklahoma city thunder traded James Harden, which was kind of strange to be in, to be in Norman, Oklahoma when that was happening. Um, I remember sitting in the airport the next morning and reading all the national coverage about a game I just covered. Um, so that was a pretty cool experience for a young reporter like myself. Um, and uh, that, so that was, to me, that would probably be my favorite game. And then I would say that the Clemson game last year was his best. Now, my my connection to that game is different, too, because I was at home. You were in the, you were in the stadium. Um, so it was certainly cool to see um, everything that happened and that Notre Dame sort of was able to pull that out. Um, but even without Trevor Lawrence, that team was good. That was a, an impressive win. Um, and it was a clutch victory, too. It wasn't like a, a game that they won – Easily, it required a lot of them to to finish that game out, um, and they were able to do that. So, to me, that that is Brian Kelly's best win. Next question is from Data Guy at uh, the underscore Jack Attack. 
Who is one player you would add from any other team in the country to this team and why? Second, any chance we see Drew Pine since he led a touchdown drive last week? Well, I, I thought about two positions, an offensive lineman or a quarterback, because I think in different ways they can solve the problem on, on offense if you get the right quarterback. And you can't import by this question. I can't import the whole offensive line. <laughs> I can just import one. So I went with Matt Corral, old Mrs. Quarterback. He is in the top ten in the country in passing efficiency. He averages 385 yards in total offense a game himself. Uh, he's averaging 4.79 yards a rush. He's got five rushing touchdowns. And again, if he's running Notre Dame's offense instead of Lane Kiffin's, uh, he would probably be a little disappointed, but he would make it work. The, the antidote a lot of times with teams uh, overcommitting to Notre Dame's traditional running game is Notre Dame's quarterbacks kind of taking the, taking the game on their shoulders and using their legs to, to kind of break that down. And Matt Corral is a good enough runner with that, so... Uh, six foot two oh five junior started at Jimmy Clausen's high school, Oaks Christian, and go. transferred to um, Long Beach Poly, which is a big producer of NFL talent. So he's got pedigree, he's got mobility. That's that's my guy. My uh, my pick, and uh, fittingly, I, I went with an offensive lineman. Um, my and it's it's hard because I haven't been able to sit down and watch a lot of offensive linemen from other teams play this season yet. Um, but one person that I'm confident is very good is uh, NC State's Ikem Ikwanu, who is the brother of Osita Ikwanu. Um, he's a real butt kicker, and Notre Dame's offensive line lacks butt kickers right now, in my opinion. Um, you could play him at tackle or guard. I think probably he would be a tackle at Notre Dame, just given the, the need, although I, I think the need is everywhere <laughs> except for center. Um, but he, he, so he was sort of my top offensive lineman pick there. There may be some better candidates out there that are, and guys that are playing better than him this season, but I haven't, I haven't been able to fully dive into what everyone's doing on the offensive line so far this year. Um, and then in, in terms of Drew Pine, I think there's definitely a chance we see Drew Pine, especially if Cone's not healthy. I'm not sure that we would see him if Cone is healthy, unless Cone is healthy and then he gets re-injured. Um, but because Juggling three quarterbacks seems like a, a recipe for disaster. Like, even though they've been able to navigate the two quarterbacks um, pretty well, I think trying to do three would 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 maybe blow up in their face. So, I I think um, the only way that we do see Drew Pine is if uh, Jack Cohn isn't ready to go. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. What grade would you give Tommy Reese overall and for the first series in the red zone? And then it, um, she also asked Braden Lindsay's best asset is clearly speed. Um, can some plays jet sweep or others be added in to utilize his speed? They are not connecting on the deep throws and it feels his best asset is being wasted. Let me start with the second part first so that I don't forget it. Um, I would say, yeah, I, I, I would like to see that. We saw that work a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, Braden was maybe the third leading rusher on the team that year. Uh, so there was 
there was a lot to like about using his versatility. So absolutely. Why not? You know, it gets you kind of out of um, it, it. I think that keeps the defense more honest than Jack Cohn running an RPO or sure. a quarterback draw. Um, as far as the grade for Tommy Reese, boy, I'll tell you. Um, so it's, it's the first, what, what's the grade on the first drive? Uh, the first, the first series that ended in the red zone. So I don't know if that was the first drive or not. Oh, okay. Yeah. The first series that ends in the red zone. So it wasn't as overall great. Uh, no, she asked both. She did ask for both. Okay. Um, And and I'm not sure if she meant overall for the game or for the season. I did the season, um, rather than just the Wisconsin game. Okay. Um, I, I think, I think for the season, he's got a difficult task. Um, yes. and I would, I'd give him a B minus. Um, I think, you know, I think given the challenges, I guess I'm great on the curve a little bit. Um, there, the, um, driving question that Marie talked about didn't end well. It was, um, Notre Dame got down to the 10 yard line and then it was a minus three rush. And I think the really bad play was running Chris Tyree on second down. Yeah. It ended up being a yard. And then there was a sack on third and long. And, and I just thought, what, what really was the best case scenario with Chris Tyree? Unless you just absolutely fooled them. And even then, you know, I think Chris Tyree fooling you is more dangerous when you're further down the field because you can run away from people. You know, you're not in the tight space of the red zone. So I give him a D and send a note home to his parents on that one. I I, I gave him a C for that series. I I thought there were two poor play calls. Um, The second before the first and goal, the second and four, um, they had Joe Alt in the game and he was misaligned and then they moved him over late. And then Wisconsin didn't like follow Joe Alt when they moved him to the other side of the line. And then so they ran to the side where that was overloaded to the right um, that Joe Alt had previously been lined up on. But the problem was there was only three seconds left in the playcock by the time Joe Alt got set. So they couldn't really audible once they saw the way Wisconsin was lined up. So they should have taken a time out there once Joe Alt was, had some sort of mix up and wasn't in the right place. Um, and so that, that running play failed. It was a, a loss of one. Um, the, the first and goal run call, I thought was actually a good one. If you, if you look at the way the defense was lined up, they had one defensive lineman, one linebacker, outside linebacker on the line and one inside linebacker to the left and four blockers on the right, Zeke Carell, Tosh, or on the left, um, Zeke Carell, Tosh Baker, George Takis, and Joe Alt. Um, I, I did think it was curious that Michael Mayer wasn't out there and all the Alt formations that sometimes it was uh, George Takis, um, but Zeke, Zeke Carell got beat on that play and that sort of ruined the whole play. And then Kyron Williams fumbled, but the, the, the truly bad play call was that second and goal play that you talked about from the 14 yard line uh, uh, running up in that situation was not, and it wasn't like a creative run play in any way. It was a, it was just a, a zone read. Um, so I would give him a C on that series um, for the season. I'd probably give him a B. I think he's been affected by a lot of the changes and has made adjustments, even though those have been some of those like, playing Tyler Buckner were put on hold because Tyler got hurt. So play calling is a lot harder when the offensive line is as poor as it's been. Um, so I think he's slowly figuring out ways to put the offensive line in better positions and trying to, to work around that. I thought the Wisconsin game wasn't his best day, lacked, lacked some creativity. 
Um, I would have liked to have seen some different things in the running games. I sort of was thinking of the, the Georgia game in 2019 where they certainly didn't run the ball a lot, but early in the game there, they were, they did a, um, a end around to, I think it would have been Lawrence keys. Um, um, but I think you got to give him credit for how drew pine performed in that game. So um, I think that sort of leads me to, to putting time races, Tommy Reese's grade um, for the season in, in the B in the B range. And then lastly, the, the, the Braden Lindsay idea, I think getting the ball on the ground could be helpful. Um, they could do that more with Tyree too. I'm, I, I've been a little bit surprised the lack of maybe jet sweeps and some, um, some misdirections with the, with the speed that they have. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, I think that the, the missed deep balls may be frustrating and even for Braden Lindsay himself, but I think they're making the defense take them into account, even if they fail. So um, maybe a little bit more trust from the quarterback um, gets it out a little bit earlier and lets Braden Lindsay track it down and create some of that space. Um, and uh, I know it's, it might not seem like it's it, sort of like pounding your head against the wall, but I think it's worth it in the long run and, and they're going to be able to connect on one of these. Next question we have, Eric, is from Stephen Goforth at Steve Goforth five. Do you think Tommy Reese is meeting with Marcus Freeman to pick his brain on how the, how to attack the Bearcats defense? Well, I think they certainly would have conversations. There's, there's so much familiarity on both sides of this that I think both staffs will have those kinds of conversations. I think that, for example, Luke Fickle and Marcus Freeman are so close and so closely aligned, you know, that what Marcus ended up developing was out of Luke Fickle's defensive principles and then Brian Kelly and Mike Denbrock were very much aligned offensively and go back to when they were on a ramen noodle budget and roommates way back at Grand Valley State. So, I mean, they, they know each other. Mickens knows Fickle and Mickens knows the Cincinnati offense. Cincinnati has a new defensive coordinator. And so, I mean, he, they can look at tape together. I'm, I'm sure there's collaboration this week, but it's not just Reese and Freeman. There are so many interesting conversations to be had with, with this matchup. Yeah. I, I think that I'm sure there's some conversations happening there between Tommy and, and Marcus, um, which sort of reminds me, I thought, I found it strange last week. For, it seemed like folks were, were talking about Jack Cohn being familiar with Wisconsin deep Wisconsin's defense. And that being some sort of advantage when, I always I would think that the bigger advantage comes from Jack's knowledge of the offense and being able to share that with Marcus Freeman. Um, he wasn't as a quarterback at Wisconsin. He wasn't planning to play against Wisconsin's defense during the season while he's the Wisconsin quarterback. Um, he was planning to play other defenses. So I think he would probably have more information about Wisconsin's offense um, than Wisconsin's defense. So so Marcus Freeman was probably picking his brain last week. And I imagine Tommy Reese is picking Marcus Freeman's brain this week. Next question is from Joe Esquire at Sad Irish Fan 13. Defensively, does Cincinnati present a different and or tougher challenge to the offense than Wisconsin did? I would say different. Um, they're the number two, two team in the country in pass efficiency defense. And not that Wisconsin came into that uh, game lagging in that category, but 
they make their living stopping you with the run and sacking you and that kind of stuff. Right. Cincinnati hasn't had, I think I mentioned this earlier, hasn't had a lot of sacks this year. They're I think 110th in the country. That doesn't mean they're not capable of it, but it, it's just going to be a different challenge. The secondary and the, you know, ends on Cincinnati, I think are their best players with Wisconsin, you know, the nose guard, the linebackers, you know, I think those were some of the best players on Wisconsin's team. So it's a little bit different in terms of who your elite personnel is, but they're both difficult schemes. They're both very good defenses last year. Cincinnati hasn't got off to quite as good a start as they did last year. And with playing Miami and Murray State mixed into that. Uh, but again, they're they're adjusting to a new coordinator. So uh, I don't think it's going to be easy at all to go against them. Yeah, the, the front seven is smaller, but might be more dynamic. Um, I don't think that Cincinnati will be able to push Notre Dame around as much as Wisconsin was up front. Um, but I'm sure Cincinnati will throw various blitzes and stunts at Notre Dame's offensive line to confuse it because um, virtually every team has done that um, to uh, to levels of success. I'm not sure if Notre Dame's offensive line is better equipped to handle speed or strength just because it doesn't. they haven't been able to handle much um, so far this year. MyJ Sanders is a good defensive end. Malik Van and Jawan Briggs are names from Notre Dame's recruiting past. Um, the biggest talent gap in my opinion is the since the cornerback position Cincinnati's corners I think it's the best cornerback duo that on Notre Dame's schedule and Ahmad Gardner and Kobe Bryant um, those those guys are talented Wisconsin's Fayon Hicks I thought played really well against Notre Dame last week um, but those guys should be even better so like we mentioned like I mentioned earlier like it might be tough sledding for Kevin Austin and Braden Lindsay this week I, I really I'm really fascinated to see how Kevin Austin performs against Ahmad Gardner um, because we've seen Kevin Austin have really great moments, and we've seen him struggle. Um, now, I don't know that the struggles were necessarily related to the defense and maybe more um, not being on the same page with, with Jack Cohn. Um, so we'll see how that sort of shakes out this week against Cincinnati. Next question is from John Mahoney at JC Mahoney 13 Was the coaching staff caught off guard by the poor line play? Are the receivers getting any separation on their routes? Is Jack Cohn capable of getting his throws off quicker? Okay, let me take the last two questions, yes and yes. Um, for the first question, was the coaching staff taken aback by how much trauma there's been on the offensive line? <laughs> I would say yes. Um, I think that um, what – where maybe they were why partly they were surprised by it is they didn't have Jarrett Patterson in the spring and they didn't know where Jarrett Patterson was going to play. Um, the thought originally was maybe he would be the left tackle and then that plan changed and then thought he might be at guard. And then they ended up adding Kane Madden from Marshall. Um, so I, I do think that they thought, They'd have some challenges, but I don't think they felt like the challenges would be at this level. Yeah, I, I, there's, there's no way they could have thought it would be this bad, um, which is why we've seen adjustments and and guys being moved in and out of the lineup. 
Um, they certainly felt that they needed someone like Kane Madden. Um, they probably thought he would play better than he has. Um, Blake Fisher coming in and starting at left tackle made me a little skeptical um, at first, but then I sort of bought into the praise that he was receiving in the preseason, the belief that he was special. And it wasn't just because he beat out a lousy group of players um, where now I'm not necessarily sure. Not that, not that Blake Fisher isn't, I'm not saying Blake Fisher isn't special, but I'm, I'm not sure if like him winning that left tackle job is as impressive as we may have thought it was because um, the left tackles, although I think Carmody has had his moments and Tosh Baker has had their moments, um, but they're just not, I don't know that either of them are necessarily ready um, to play left tackle at this level right now. Um, and they're being forced to. Um, so I, I, I never got the sense in our conversations with Tommy Reese and Brian Kelly that they thought the offensive line would be something that would really, really hamstring them this season. And, and it has um, now, now I think they knew that there would be challenges and it wouldn't be as good as last year, but I don't think that they thought it would sort of be, the thing that's holding them back in certain situations. Um, the second couple of questions, I don't think wide receiver separation has been a big issue. There certainly have been times where um, Kevin Austin or Braden Lindsay have guys on them, um, but better throws can, can allow them to win those matchups. I think Braden Lindsay has to do a better job in making contested catches. Kevin Austin has done a pretty good job, but he's, he struggled in the Purdue game with that. Um, is, is Jack Cohn capable of making those throws quick, quickly? I would like to think so, um, but if he is, he needs to start doing it better. Um, the, the offensive line is giving him ever, every reason to want to throw the ball quicker. Um, so if uh, I, whatever issue is there, I don't think it's because he's like, oh, no worries, I got plenty of time. I think he, he knows that he needs to get the ball out quick. Um, the shotgun thing really was like, really, that's that's something that we're still, we're still worried about with Jack Cohn. Um, I would have thought that they – would have felt better about that by now. Um, so we, we will see. I think those quick throws are going to be very important and maybe there's better ways to incorporate quick throws in the offense um, to get, to get those guys in, in a better rhythm. Next question is from David Carmichael at David Carr, 1967. Do you think there is any animosity from the other offensive linemen towards Jeff Quinn by giving Kane Madden the job over the other offensive linemen who had been in the program, also considering his poor play so far? Well, I think that if you look at who won the jobs, the other jobs, I don't think Jeff Quinn played favorites. He started a true freshman at left tackle in the first game, and that's the second time in 50 years that a true freshman offensive lineman has played and then you look at just all the youth I mean Joe Alt's a true freshman he's played it's very rare that um, I think he's the ninth freshman to play at all as an offensive lineman for Notre Dame in the last 50 years so if Kane is playing I think it's because he's earned it I you know they don't it's not like if you grad transfer in and you don't win the starting job that you can jump in the transfer portal. Right? I guess you could, uh, but there's nowhere to go. You know, <laughs> right. it would be a seventh year and he doesn't have that. So he's kind of stuck here. And, you know, when I've talked to the other offensive linemen, I, you know, they seem to be happy with Kane and they seem to feel like that's the best plan. I mean, there's no incentive for Jeff Quinn to put 
Kane Madden on the field if if Rocco Spindler, Andrew Christophic, or John Dirksen were better? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the only thing you could say is like, well, maybe they're afraid that this will dissuade grad transfers from coming in as offensive linemen. But I don't think that's in, in like Notre Dame's plan to have offensive line grad transfers regularly. This is sort of an anomaly. Um, so I don't know that there would be like, oh, we got to make sure that we we live up to our end of the deal by bringing in Cade Madden and giving him a chance. Um, they've given him a chance already. Um, so I, I think they're, I mean, you talk about talking to their offensive line. We certainly haven't talked to the offensive linemen that were beat out by Kane Madden. Um, and those guys could have some level of animosity towards Jeff Quinn. I think there's always some some level of animosity from guys that aren't, aren't playing as much as they'd like to. Um, it's lessened, in my opinion, when you like the guy you lost a position battle to. I think Kane is well-liked from every discussion we've had with the, the fellow starters, um, but he certainly doesn't have a history with the group, so it might be a little bit different. Um, but I mean, in my opinion, like anyone who's playing behind Caden Madden and wasn't able to beat him out, had a chance to beat out Zeke Carell as well. Um, and I don't think, uh, I mean, that for whatever reason, they believe that, that Caden Madden is the right guy for this job. I don't, I don't think anyone would say that Caden Madden has played nearly as well as people thought he would. Um, and I think he, he would certainly be fair game to, to sharing some time with someone else. I'm just not sure that they, they're comfortable with doing that yet, um, I think they're, they're sort of stuck in the same stuff situation of like, do you make changes because the guys aren't playing well or do you stick with the guys that aren't playing well because you think they can improve? And that's a tough thing to sort of get a sense for. Um, and it's up to Jeff Quinn to sort of determine how much progress he feels like these current offensive linemen can make. And if that is greater than the progress that could be made if, if someone else got into the game. Next question is an email from Ken in Pensacola. Can this team go undefeated this year? And which remaining team on our schedule presents the biggest problem? I think it can go undefeated. I think there's a still a thin margin for error just because of where the offense is right now. The fact that the defense is gaining momentum is helping that equation. And Notre Dame is in the top five in turnover margin, and they kind of have to stay there yeah. until the offense can – can be more consistent, more explosive, more balanced. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that's out there for them. The best team, obviously, is Cincinnati. So beyond that, you know, it's not always about who the best team is. It's the matchups. Virginia is really good. They have a very good quarterback, and they put up a lot of yards and a lot of points. But they have been a turnover machine, and, and that's hurt them. And their defense has been bad. So will you have the uh, resistible force versus the movable <laughs> object when they they play? So if you got into a turnover game with Virginia on the road where, where you're minus turnovers, that could be tricky. I think um, uh, North Carolina with Sam Howell, even though they've had some clunkers, a lot of that has been turnovers with him. He's thrown interceptions. He had three lost fumbles in the Georgia Tech game. And then I would I would throw Georgia Tech into that ring because <laughs> they lose to Northern Illinois. Then they, a couple weeks later, almost beat Clemson. And then they just boat race North Carolina. I mean, they just crushed them. So there must be something going on at Georgia Tech other than hidden uh, depth charts. Yeah, I thought George, before going into the season, I thought maybe Georgia Tech was like a year away from being uh, someone that could cause some problems for ACC teams. And um, at least in North Carolina's case, that 
that is happening now. Um, in ter- I'll start with the toughest remaining. I, other than Cincinnati, I, I might pick Virginia Tech just because of the timing of having to hit the road in a tough environment after the Wisconsin and Cincinnati games. Um, North Carolina has the same offensive line problems that Notre Dame has. Um, I think the stat against Georgia Tech was, I think Georgia Tech entered the game with two sacks or maybe three. And then I think they had eight against North Carolina. Um, so the North Carolina's offensive line is, is not playing well this season. Um, so that would seem to be a good indication for Notre Dame because Notre Dame's defense would, should be able to eat up that offensive line. Um, but I genuinely don't know which game is the toughest remaining after Cincinnati. I, I, I posed that uh, question on Twitter after the, the, the way the, 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 the Pat this weekend's games sort of played out um, in terms of going undefeated. Can it? Sure. Uh, it would require the offensive line to play a lot better. And the, to me, a little bit of the bad luck with injuries to subside. I think um, Notre Dame has sort of managed that as best as they can and, and been able to avoid that, but um, they are certainly thin in certain positions um, and can't afford to lose um, more guys in certain spots. Um, so if Notre Dame wins this weekend, um, it's, it's, I would say it becomes realistic that it can run the table. Um, but with a bad offensive line, all the remaining games that are winnable are easily, easily losable as well. I think uh, this, there's a wide variance in, in the, how the rest of the season could, could play out for Notre Dame. Next question is from Burt Leonard at Burt2834. During the Wisconsin game, they showed Graham Mertz dumping liquid, presumably, presumably Gatorade, from a Gatorade cup onto his hands. Is this a thing quarterbacks do to make their hands a bit more sticky or was he dumping water? I couldn't find anything (laughs) on that. Um, And given that he threw four interceptions, it's not working. Yes. Um, So (laughs) maybe he forgot where his mouth was. I don't know. Tyler, do you have anything? I Googled it and I couldn't find anything. No, I have no idea. I, and I did not see it on the, on the game when I was rewatching it or live. Um, that's it. So I don't, I'm wondering if Bert is seeing things or if this is real, it would be very concerning to me. If this, I mean, the only thing I could imagine he was like dumping water and he, his like hands were sticky. And so he was trying to get, get that off his hands, something off of his hands. But um, like you said, whatever he was doing wasn't working. Uh, so I would uh, recommend no one do whatever, whatever he was doing. <laughs> um, Last question, we have another one of your favorites from Jack Quinn at JQ6008. Should the jerseys worn in the Wisconsin game, not the pants, be the permanent home jerseys? I think so, says Jack Quinn. And I said your favorite because we all know how much you love questions about jerseys. Yeah. You know, here's my story on on matching and, and what you wear to the game. So when I was a young reporter at uh, the South Bend Tribune, I was covering Indiana basketball, Indiana University basketball. And my sports editor was assistant sports at the time, Bill Belinsky, was the sidebar guy. He We drove down to Bloomington. We're in the car together for four hours. And uh, we had our coats on because it was absolutely freezing. So we get to the arena. We get to our seats. We're sitting right next to each other. We take our coats off and we have the identical sweater on. (laughs) So from that point forward, I have no opinion about what anybody else wears to the games. (laughs) All right. Um, I, I usually have uniform thoughts, um, which, uh, so I I I only do if it involves Maryland, that looks like a 
scrambled egg with a bloody mary poured on it <laughs> yeah I, i'm not a big fan of maryland's get-ups uh in terms of the notre dame uniforms they wore for the shamrock series game against wisconsin the sh- shoulder details on the shoulder pads um didn't thrill me i could get behind the bigger numbers i sort of like those um but overall i mean th- the jerseys to me were sort of like perfectly inoffensive like they just were they were sort of like okay that's 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 fine that's an notre dame uniform there wasn't much to it uh, it was which I think the first Shamrock series uniform that didn't freak out the over 25 crowd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there was the least amount of blowback. Although there was were there were definitely theories online that these 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 uniforms were actually designed with last year's game at Landed Oil Field in mind and then retroactively made to, to have some significance to, to Chicago by throwing some stars on on, on the on the on the, the on the uh, details. So um, I think they're fine. I, I, I like, I like Notre Dame's gold outlining of the white numbers on the home uniform. So I would maybe add that to the mix and get rid of the, if we, if we were going to make some compromise, give, give me bigger numbers. Um, but uh, leave the, leave the rest of the, the jerseys the way they are for Notre Dame's home, home tops. All right. That's it for today's episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week with a Cincinnati review and Virginia Tech preview. Until then, stick with ndinsider.com for all your Notre Dame football pregame and postgame coverage needs.